started. Why do we need to be encouraged and exhorted and admonished and reproved? Why? Why is that, why is that so important? Other than we're all jerks, you know. <laughs> why do we need that? Why do we do it? Why is this, why is this an important ministry that we have to one another? If you look at yourself, you're just going to see how much of a failure you are and you need other people sometimes to pat you on the back. And then sometimes we're just plain out wrong and you need other people to kick you in the butt. Yes, I agree. Yeah, because, because our sanctification is not a solo act, you know. Our sanctification is not a solo act. We're just talking about why do we need... Why do we need to encourage and be encouraged and exhort and be exhorted and to admonish and to be admonished and reproved to be reproved? Why do we need? Because our our sanctification is not a uh, it's not something we do alone like anything else in the faith, and uh, that's why it is such an important ministry to one another. It's so easy to see the best in ourselves, and it, at times it can be easy to see the worst in ourselves. Um, and, and in the giving, I think, especially when it comes to reproof, and the giving of reproof, the thing we have to be... What do, what do we need to be most mindful of when we're reproving, do you suppose? And, and I suppose this applies to, to the other, the other uh, forms of you know, inter- interchange that we have. The other form, as Newt would say, of religious intercourse that we have. What, what do we need to be mindful of? But particularly when it comes to reproof. Doing it in love? Yeah, yeah absolutely doing it in love, yep. And, and, and that will, if we're doing it in love, then we're going to do it in accordance with, yeah, the Word of God, right? How easy is it to try to conform someone else to our image? <laughs> it's true. How much of our reproof at times is really just a desire to have the person be more of what we want them to be without respect to whether or not that's something that the Lord would have us be? And I think probably more often than not, even sometimes our encouragement and flattery sometimes might be based in our own sense of the way we like things. Again, without regard or respect for biblically what's going on in this person's life or our own life. So it's easy to commend in others that which we like in ourselves. It's also easy to reprove in others that which we dislike in ourselves. So it really is a, a, it really is a, a careful thing to do. And I think that we need to continue to always be developing it and learning it and, and becoming better and better at it if we really love one another and if we really want to partner with one another in the gospel, right? So that, again, we're not just, as I mentioned last week, we're not, I've dismissed in my own frame of mind, you feel free to encourage to use it, I've dismissed in my mind this idea of accountability partner. I think it's very limiting. I like much better the idea of gospel partner or holiness partner because for some reason, accountability partner just always carries with it this sense of, you know, we got to keep each other away from sin. And there's more to sanctification than just not sinning, isn't there? What? Yes. You know, a lot of times I notice too with people who've had accountability partners, mm-hmm. there's always one person who's kind of the muscle of the partnership, <laughs> in, in the sense that, uh, <laughs> that they set the tempo. Yeah. And they think a more passive personality. It's kind of like along for the ride, so to speak. Yes. You know, basically get told off every week about their sin. And, and, and maybe not having the capacity or the or to those partnerships have become very one way. Yes. Yes, and if we're going to be that person in someone else's life, if we're going to be that partner in their sanctification, if we're going to come alongside one another in holiness, 
then rather than just always checking in with the person, like, hey, how you doing with those lustful thoughts lately? You know what I mean? <clears throat> sending, sending, uh, sending little scriptures out that, that we might come to mind as we ask the Lord to help us help that person. Uh, encouraging um, what, what's good and positive and that kind of thing, as opposed to just this sense of we got to be one another's sin inspectors. Because I just think accountability partner carries that more derogatory sense. Now that, again, could be the cynic in me, that could be the over-analyst in me, but I think it's true. I think it's true. Um, so you can take that, I guess, for what it's worth. I'm not going to, I'm not going to mock you or, or disagree with you if you think accountability partner, for example, is a better term. Um, but, you know, Scripture tells us to provoke one another, to encourage one another, and we can do all those things. My concern is always that we have as the gospel, the, the, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ as the fulfillment of God's promises and God's desire for us to be reconciled to himself as the primacy of our, of our um, motivation as opposed to just making sure that other person isn't doing something wrong, you know? It's, not that there isn't that right place for that. We want to. We want to be able to. Um, I'll never forget uh, something that your dad said once, or he did with the ladies that were getting together at your house on Wednesday night for Christmas. Uh, he gave them all the gift of velvet-covered bricks, <laughs> because one of the things they do is holding one another accountable, right? And I remember him saying that that he 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 took some velvet, and he covered some bricks, and gave it to each one of the ladies. <laughs> and I thought that's a good way to think about reproof and admonishment. You know, when you have to do it, it's a, it's a velvet covered brick. So a good, I can almost see your father putting that together out in the shop. You know, getting all excited about the idea of it. You know, <laughs> and your mother graciously receiving it. So let's let's read some more uh, commentary here from. Uh, as we continue in, in, in Newtonian phonics, as I've called it, right? <clears throat> as opposed to Newtonian physics, which was the uh, product of which Newton? So we're going with Newtonian phonics, which is learning how to talk and think in the way that Newton does and his encouragement to others. And we're continuing in his letters to Mrs. Wilberforce, we pick up there this week, where he also did some last week. And again, I'm going to encourage us to keep in mind you know, what what sorts of things, you know, come to his mind, or what scripture was going on? What 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 revelation of God has so settled into the mind of Newton that his reflex his, his what has his what has he inhaled that makes his exhale so wonderful, right? Uh, what what has he eaten that makes his breath so pleasant to be around? <laughs> right? Versus the versus the dog breath of legalism. In this, this one he's writing, and he's, this is the second letter he sent to her. This is September 1764, covering the subjects of the Christian warfare, assurance, which is something that's often fleeting for Christians, and love to Christ. And I think we all know people that struggle with assurance, if, it, if not ourselves at times. And it's important to understand the reasons why we do. But, My dear madam, your welfare I rejoice in. Your warfare I understand something of. So my sense is she must be, again, having this communication about this struggle. Without, we're fightings, within we're fears. Does not this comprehend all you would say? And how are you to know experimentally either your own weakness or the power, wisdom, and grace of God seasonably and sufficiently afforded, but by frequent and various trials? 
This is what he's asking. How are you going to know experimentally, experientially, in reality, what your own weakness is? I'm just sort of paraphrasing him now. What your own weakness and power is, right? And what the grace of God is, unless there are things to, to try them. How are you going to know? How are you going to know? And ultimately, we, we don't necessarily like that approach that God takes sometimes. Of giving us experiences by which we can know the degree to which we've grown in grace and knowledge and power and trust, and how much we literally trust Him. What scripture do you suppose is in His mind? Well, he's talking about things like even just the words He throws out, and the hints are there. Various trials, right? Yeah, like, James. Yeah, right. Count it all joy when you fall into various. How many people really count it all joy? I have come to realize I am I am not a good sufferer. That's just honest. I don't suffer as well as I should. Period. I, I'm not going to lie about it to myself. I'm not going to deceive myself. I don't suffer well. How do I know? Because of my own sense of my own agitation levels. My own sense of impatience over certain things. That is not suffering well. And what does that reveal in somebody? Ultimately... Some of it is just habit and things that you need to grow out of. But what does it ultimately reveal? Distrust. Yeah, exactly. Distrust. Mm -hmm. Also, you you may be like that, and there may be others like that, and I think I'm like that too, Mm -hmm. is because you've enjoyed a long time life of Mm -hmm. maybe no trials, little trials, or no health problems Mm -hmm. or financial problems that were really very, very serious. Mm -hmm. So when it, you approach the threshold of something like that happening, mm. you kind of freak out. Like, I don't know. I've never been in this territory before. Yes. Yeah. Exactly, right? But all of those are ordained of God, as he's going to go on to point out. All of those. Yes, Mark? Yeah, just, uh, the experiences that people uh, go through mm-hmm. are really a training ground, too. I mean, it's, uh, you don't get hit with the, with the maximum issues Usually, right. uh, they come in smaller bits and pieces mm-hmm. of uh, discomfort or issues you have to deal with and, and learn from and grow through. And sometimes there's a sense, I know this about myself and maybe you do too, that the big things, it's like we can suffer the big things better. It's as if we have a sense of that we still have control over the smaller things and because we don't respond well to the smaller things, we get frustrated in ourselves because I should be able to handle this or whatever. Yes? I, I just want to describe a, a situation that happened this week. I was, uh, I've been looking for, well, I haven't been looking forward to the fact that I have to get a tooth replaced. Ah. I'm going to go, go for a, uh, an implant. Yep. And I was just dreading, because I've been there before, and I, it, wasn't, it wasn't expensive, and it wasn't, That's right. uh, it wasn't fun, all that stuff. Um, but I went to Worcester, and I had to go to this periodontal place, and I... I so I got in a chair, and the guy was really good. The guy was really, really professional, and all that. But all of a sudden, in the back of me, uh, Lydia comes in because she works there as a, huh. as, a der- as a dental hygienist, and, and I have the selfie here to prove it. But uh, <laughs> just, you know, all of a sudden, to me, that was just a manifestation of God being here, preparing the way ahead of time. That's pretty cool for me to be less uh, uh, anxious. In, in, in distress over going through that situation uh, then I really and I'm, actually I'm kind of looking forward to it get it over with and, yes. but it's a lot less stressful than it was last Monday morning and I, I think and I welcome your input I think 
feeling stress and feeling anxiety and those things is quite normal and not sinful at all. Period. I mean, nobody was more anxious than the Lord Jesus Christ in Gethsemane. Under severe stress and anxiety. Again, that's that he had a very rare case of this... I forget the medical term for it. Maybe Denise knows. What's the medical term for sweating blood? You know, it's very rare where blood can get into literally every every sweat gland. You know, and and, and, and cause that effect. So it's not sinful to experience those things. It's it's more of our response to them, right? Uh, even Jesus asked if it's possible the cup be taken away. So I don't even think that's sinful. To but what what. How do we know, I guess? What's, what's the red line? How do we know when we've crossed that line from the sort of experiencing the suffering and the difficulty and the trials that we all do, accepting those in, in, in a manner consistent with what God has promised us? What's the difference between that and, and distrusting? Doubting yeah, definitely doubting His goodness. <clears throat> And, and what does that look like when we doubt his goodness? Well, you can. Yeah, Randy. Yeah, anger. A good one. Right? That is probably the, the best one. We might call it other things because we love to have anger denial. Right? People can deny anger the way addicts deny their alcoholism and their drug addiction. They say, no, I'm not angry. You know, I'm just, I'm just being impatient. Or I'm just being, you know. Or, or likewise, no, I'm not impatient. I'm angry. Well, they're, they're all very closely aligned. You know? Anger is, as I said this before, typically... In its in its in its worst, it, it, it's a um, it covers something else. It covers fear. It, 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 it's 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 a it's a covering for fear or, or, or anxiety or some other thing going on. Fear. It's an underlying thing. Anger is just what we see at the surface. So yeah, we get angry. Newton continues. How are the graces of patience, resignation, meekness, and faith to be discovered and increased, but by exercise? Right. If you go to the gym, you don't just walk into the gym and sit there for an hour and wonder why you're not getting any additional muscle growth and why you're not losing any weight. I don't understand to go to the gym three times a week. Oh, really? Well, what are you doing? Oh, just sitting there watching other people. You can't lose weight by watching other people diet. You can't gain muscle mass by watching other people, you know, hit the bench. Right? And it sounds silly. But that's what's going on. That's how we have to grow. You don't get to... You don't get to we, we can learn, we can observe methods and things like that by just sitting there. We can, we, and there's something to be learned by that. I mean, you have to watch the way other people use the machine before you get on there and use it the wrong way. But you get into the game. God puts us in the game by putting us under that, you know, allowing those particular things. He continues, The Lord has chosen, called, and armed us for the fight. And shall we wish to be excused? God's completely equipped us for this battle. Designed us for it. Should we then wish to be excused from it? Newton says, right? Shall we not rather rejoice that we have the honor to appear in such a cause, under such a captain, such a banner, and in such company? He, Newton talks in such a way that he almost wants to say, yeah, I'm ready to suffer, let's do it. Doesn't he? But he, he's only pointing out the obvious. What, what scriptures, what's he got in mind? What what? What comes to mind when you hear this? That the Lord has chosen, called, and armed us for the fight. And shall we wish to be excused? Shall we not rather rejoice that we have the honor to appear in such a cause, under such a captain, such a banner, and in such company? Yes. Did you have a hand? No, but I think of the 
our weapons, our warfare, exactly. our kind of Yeah, yeah, excellent. Yeah, that's a real good. It's not the one I had in mind either, but that's that's a real good one. Yeah, I, I think of the um, our spiritual armor, right? In Ephesians, is a six or five, six. Thanks. So there's that. I love. Where was the scripture? He's called the captain of our salvation. That's one of my favorite titles for Jesus. Is it Timothy or Titus? Hebrews two. Hebrews. Hebrews. I know that's not the. Um, yeah, what is that exactly? What? what? Uh, he was made a little lower. The angels were suffering. That he was made. Uh, uh, I, that's not the same. The author and finisher of our faith, right? Because that's no, pioneer, that's, perfecter, that's and all that. That's 12. later. That's twelve too. <laughs> yeah. But you're referring to Hebrews two. I think it's around verse. And I don't think the other Nine. translations carry it, do they? I think the King James does. If it's leader, really means the word for leader. Yeah. <coughs> we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering death, so that the right grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Oh, the founder of their salvation is the way that ESV translates it. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Yeah. yeah. Pioneer. Pioneer, yes. What's, what's that? The NIV? Well, who's got the King James? That says captain, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah, I, we have the King James. <laughs> He's, uh, he has like the Book of Eli, right? Huh? You see that movie, The Book of Eli? Have you ever seen that? Eli? E-L-I? E-L-I, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Did we talk about that here recently, or did I have that conversation with someone else? Okay, it's a small group. That's right. Thanks. That's why it seems familiar. So the Book of Eli is, is with Denzel Washington, and he's in this dystopian future where, you know, people are basically just killing and, and, and plundering, and, and it's just it's dystopian, right? And he's on a mission. He needs to get to uh, the old prison island off the coast of San Francisco, right? He needs to get there because that's where the one library left on the planet is being preserved and put back together so that they can have culture and retain culture and, and, and religion and all these things. And so he's trying to get a King James Bible from where he is to that library. And it's just a, I mean, it's, it's classic Denzel fighting. If you love a good bloodbath, you love to see good win over evil and you love good you know, weapons and all that stuff. And you love to see the bad guys get it. This is the movie for you. And so, you know, but he's, and the reason why it's called the Book of Eli is by the time he gets there, he no longer actually has the Bible. He's lost the Bible to Gary Oldman, who knows that if he can get this Bible, he can control people. Right? So he really, he's chasing Denzel down. He wants to get this Bible from it because if he gets it, he can bring the people under his control, right? So, anyway, he, 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 um, I hate to ruin the storyline, but if you don't want to hear it, go in the other room because I'm going <laughs> to spoil alert here. So, come to find out, <clears throat> Gary Oldman's all disappointed when he opens the Bible to find out that it's Braille. And you never even know that, that uh, Denzel is blind throughout the movie because oh, cool. you just don't even know it. Uh, and so what ends up happening is he's, he's in a state of near death, but he gets to the island. This young lady helps him get to the island, and he has the entire King James Bay Bible committed to memory. So he just he starts... Quoting it to the guy, they get him all, they get him out of his bloody warfare clothes and get him all dressed in this pure white robe and everything. He's just laying down and he starts, you know, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and 
then you see a typeset being done and all that. So he, he memorized the whole Bible. He got the whole Bible committed to memory. So it's the book of Eli. So I got the book of Gary because he's got the King James. He's got the King James Bible down pretty good in a lot of places, right? So, <clears throat> so when you think that, okay, we're suffering, because everyone's going to suffer anyway. Everyone in the whole, there's very few people that are not going to suffer. I mean, they just are. And, and the people that uh, are exercised well by it are those that benefit by it you know, the most. So we definitely get the sense of James and Corinthians that a whole Bible mindset. And this is how, this is the only way we're going to ever know how to be that kind of a sanctifying partner to somebody else. Is that our worldview, our, our, the way that we see things, the way we understand reality, the way that we can respond is so trained by the Word of God that it happens. And it's such an idealistic thing for me to see it that way. And I, it's not going to be perfected on this side. So let's get that straight, right? It's just not going to be perfected on this side. But it is going to get increasingly better, hopefully. He continues here a little later on in the letter. If your heart be like mine, again, this is Newton. If your heart be like mine, and you examine your love to Christ by the warmth and frequency of your emotions towards him. So I think he's moving into this discussion about assurance now. Okay? And I can tell that just by what he's saying to her. If your heart be like mine, and you examine your love to Christ by the warmth and frequency of your emotions towards him, you will often be in a sad suspense whether or no you love him at all. Right? So if you're going to measure your love for Christ by how you feel emotionally about him at any given time, you're going to get yourself thinking you don't love him at all. The best mark to judge by, and by which he has given us for that purpose is to inquire if his word and will have a prevailing, governing influence upon our lives and our temper. The way that you can tell if you love Christ or not is not by the emotions that come and go, because our emotions are subject to so many things, including too much coffee, too much sugar, not enough food. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things that affect our emotions. We can, we can even get our emotions... Uh, our emotions can be in conflict because of something else that happened. Right? Some other relationship. Something else has gone wrong. And so, he's, he's pointing out for us here the very same thing the Scriptures. You want to know if you have a true love for Christ? What did Jesus say? If you love me, you'll feel good about me all the time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Yes? <clears throat> I'm reading a book, Christians and Pagans in the City. And he uh, quotes... Uh, a man who um, was a Jewish guy in the concentration camps, and he ended up becoming a, a major psychologist in the 20th century, his name is Frankel. And he came to the conclusion, because the, the context of the beginning of his chapters is the meaning of life. And of course, we have the high ground, of course, as Christians, in concern of understanding the meaning of life, which includes our understanding of suffering. Mm-hmm. And so he says, he says when he was in the concentration camps, he says he thought about this, um, and he says he says if I can't see the meaning of life in the midst of my suffering, mm-hmm. he says how can I see the meaning of life in my surviving? Right. Yeah. Unless the meaning for life for you is survival, just simply survival, regardless of everything else. Right. You know what is the great test again? John brings it up again in the letters that he writes, particularly First John. Love has such a place in that, doesn't he? Love for God. And how that relates to keeping his commandments. You know, following him. 
not, not, not this legalistic adherence to a set of requirements, but I mean, the commandments of God are the, uh, uh, and of Christ, especially the commandment to love, in which all the law is fulfilled, to do those things is to show a desire to follow Christ. So that's not legalistic. To, to, to trust that this is the way that, that a human should live if that human wishes to enjoy relationship with God and one another. This is how you do that. The commandments, the, the, the statutes, the ways that God shows us. This is how you have relationship. This is how you enjoy me. This is how we enjoy one another. But we push back against that because God is love. Right? With God is love, we have to remember God is love. So we have a tendency to, to sort of not do that. So that's what he's saying. If, if, the, if the Word of God has a prevailing, governing influence upon your life and your temper. What a way to say it, right? Does it have that prevail? In other words, is that the thing that moves you the most to act? Is your response to um, the world and the things that happen, you know, what's, what's, something is governing your response. Something is determining what your response is going to be. And so in the world of, uh, you know, uh, of the culture that we're in, if we consistently and only open ourselves up to the reactions of people that aren't Christ's, then we're going to start to be conformed a little bit to that same thing. We're going to start to say the same insulting things about our uh, those that are acting against the best interests of the public, those that are acting contrary to the Constitution, those that are acting contrary to good uh, governance, our response to them is going to be the same response as the pagan, as the unbeliever. It's going to be a name-calling. It's going to be in sharing memes about you know the president falling up the stairs. It's going to, we're going to have these subtle responses to that suffering that's been imposed upon us by the powers that are supposed to preserve the rights that we have, right? And, 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 it's, and how do we respond to that? Um, so, or, uh, you know, think of your job, any other area in life. How do, something goes on at work, you find yourself complaining in the same way that your co-workers. Chances are that the Word of God does not have a governing, prevailing governing influence upon your life and your temper. This is true, isn't it? I mean, I'm, I'm open to, to uh, correction on this. Is it not so? I, if I look at the way that I respond to what's going on at my job, and I don't know about your job, but my job can be like any other thing in place. It can be just a mess. With certain things going on, with certain people getting away with things, with you know all this other stuff, injustice happens in the workplace as much as it does anywhere. Do, amen? amen? Does it not? Amen. How do we respond to that injustice? Right, and it's very easy when you're surrounded by unbelievers in a workplace, most likely, or semi-believers, or certainly people whose whose lives and tempers are not uh, governed by the Word of God. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and holy, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is, this is serious business. This is how we're to live. This is how we can live. If we love Him, we do endeavor to keep His commandments. Newton continues now. If we love Him, we do endeavor to keep His commandments. And it will hold the other way. If we have a desire to please Him, 
we undoubtedly love him. If we have a desire to please God, we undoubtedly love him. Even when we mess up. I'm, re- I'm reminded of my days in AA. The only one of the uh, traditions was the only desire for member. The only the only uh, requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. And that person might get dragged. They may go in and out of there, but man, they just that desire that we have. If we have a desire to please Him, we undoubtedly love Him. But but how is that desire going to mature? Yes. You know, in a worldly country that we have, with all the benefits that we have by being in it, living in it, we have a kind of a distorted view of suffering, and, and it kind of feeds into the biblical worldview we should have towards suffering. So we 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 redefine it, and so you know the Bible talks about fellowship and suffering, and so I mean Christ and all of the suffering did not cease in fellowship with His Father. Right. Neither should true. we cease in the, the body of Christ and with God Himself. Wonderful. We always we tend to put the suffering; it's either a negative or a positive effect, rather than all being positive in the sense of being the perfect will of God. Was not Jesus' life a, a, a constant suffering? Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he had to leave the glories. Of, of, you know, how can you? How does that step down? Not constitute suffering on a regular basis. I mean, imagine you get to be in, 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 the, in the, you know, in the hereafter, you know. I mean, not that this would happen, but, you know, you're, 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 you're with, we're with, we're with uh, the Lord and the saints, you know, for a thousand years. And all of a sudden, we get a, you're told, okay, you have to, we're going to put you back now to plug you back into where you were before. Whoa, no. You know, again, not that that could happen. I suppose there are some end times eschatologies that would allow for the possibility of uh, of that, but I don't think they're biblical. <clears throat> Obedience is the best test, he says. Obedience is the best test. Again, is it the book of Hebrews that talks Hebrews that talks about the obedience of faith, or is that Paul in Romans? The obedience of what? Of faith. The obedience of faith. Those two terms are used together. Somebody look that up. The obedience of faith. Google that. Find out where that is, please. It's either Romans or Hebrews. I begin to suspect more and more that it's Romans. The two are so inter- inter- interchangeably, I mean, are so close together, aren't they? Faith and obedience very much go together. I mean, that, again, that's what the whole book of James is, is uh, in much, much about. Obedience is the best test of our love for Christ. Where is it? Romans 1.5. what? 5? 1.5. Read it. Yeah. Hold on, I didn't get that far yet. <laughs> oh, you got... <laughs> she got the response from Google. Now she's got to click on the link. Yeah. Romans 1.5. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. The obedience that comes from faith. We just don't like to think of it that way. We have such a, you know, we get ourselves at times, understandably, um, concerned about the um, overemphasis on works as a means of receiving the grace of God that some of us were raised with in Roman Catholicism, right? So in Roman Catholicism, the sacraments, by and large, are a way of God infusing grace through the sacraments. Okay, and that can that can lead to a real problem. Um, bring about in, in the 
What translation were you reading from? Right. So the English Standard Version says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Okay? For the sake of his name. So it's the obedience that comes from faith. The two are so close together. So that's how Newton can say, obedience is the best test. And when he continues amidst all our imperfections, we can humbly appeal concerning the sincerity of our view this is a mercy for which we ought to be grateful, thank, gratefully thankful. We can humbly appeal concerning the sincerity of our view. We can, when, when amidst all our imperfections, we can just be humble and, and take a look at, at what we know to be true. This is a mercy for which we ought to be gratefully thankful. So we should be thankful if we look and find ourselves, to some extent, not loving Christ based on you know, obedience, again, rather than the fleeting emotions that come and go, because they do. Sometimes I feel very much like a Christian, right? When I think of what the other times, I don't at all. You know, and those are times when, again, it's so easy to, to you know, cross that line into legalism, right? That whole sense of, man, how can I still, how can I still be that guy? How can I still be that guy? Well, again, Newton's covered this somewhat. In, in previous letters we read, because you're still on this side of the sod, right? You're still on this side of glory. And yet we don't use that as an excuse. But it is a mercy, he's saying. Now he continues, Newton, as to daily occurrences, it is best to believe that a daily portion of comforts and crosses, each one the most suitable to our case, is adjusted and appointed by the hand which was once nailed to the cross for us. What a way to put it. So let me, let me help out with that. As to, as to the daily experience of feeling warmth, of feeling affection, of suffering and not suffering, he says, it's best to believe that a daily portion of our comforts and our crosses, and we get a daily portion of those, do we not? There's a box of comfort in the back room right there. Right? It's sugar-coated yum-yum. Right? And coffee and everything else. And, and our fellowship... You know, you we are one another's chocolate-covered donut this morning, whether we see it that way. Right? We are. We, we, this, these are the comforts of the Lord. These are, these are His comforts and our crosses. Okay? Sometimes we can be one another's cross as well. Uh, but each one is, is appointed. So, so the Lord has by His hand, by His will, by His way, by His sovereignty in our lives, allowed each cross and each comfort to come in just the right mix in just the right blend. And that hand which prepares that, by the way, is the hand that was nailed to the cross for us. So before you doubt its goodness, which is what someone said earlier, you know, it's doubting his goodness, right? Before you doubt his goodness, remember that, that the hand that's allowed that, the mind that has allowed that into our lives is the same mind, the same being that was crucified for us. Right? The same heart that was pierced for us is the heart that has prepared this particular mix or allowed this particular mix of suffering, of, of comfort and crosses. Every day is going to have a blend of comfort and cross. Alright? If we were a kid, it might be the you know, it might be the the meat and the broccoli, you know? Except we just don't see the broccoli as, as acceptable and as good. It doesn't taste as good. But since the Lord is in consistently, consistently forming and shaping us, we will 
continue to see these crosses and comforts the way that Newton's talking about them as prepared by the hand that, again, bled for us and, and, and was nailed to the cross for us. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? Or again, do we just believe that, you know, if the Lord really loved me, he'd keep me from this suffering? We don't even know what suffering he actually does keep us from either. He certainly keeps us from some. He certainly keeps some things from getting to us. Um, and, and, and at the same time, you know, I think, I don't know if it's uh, Psalm 56, I think 3 to 4, it says, you know, when I am afraid, I will trust in God. I will, I, will, I will trust, you know, in him whose word I praise, I will trust in God. When I, I shall not fear. What, what can flesh do to me, you know? I, I, when I fear, I will trust in God. So we're going, we're going to fear. We're going to experience fear. Of course we are. Being a Christian doesn't mean being, being, you, you never have fear. That's insane. We're human. We have the full range of emotions. And he ends that particular letter to Mr. Wilberforce again. I am, my dear madam, your obliged and affectionate servant. John Newton. And again, we wouldn't probably send one of them. <laughs> I probably wouldn't send, I wouldn't sign that to another man's wife mm-hmm. nowadays. I am, my dear madam, your obliged and affectionate servant. Hey, who's this? Right, this deal. <laughs> okay, here's, here's yet another letter to him. This is the third letter. How are we doing out there, all right? How's the heat in here? I feel hot. I feel very warm. Am I very warm or is it just because I'm right in the right in the aim of that thing? Alright, okay. In the hot spot more than one way, right? All right? As long as the people that are on the fringes are comfortable, that's cool. Uh, so this was written in 1769. He's addressing sensible comfort, rejoicing in God alone, the loss of friends, and the deprivation of ordinances. Interesting. He says here, I hope the Lord will give me a humble sense of what I am and that broken and contrite frame of heart in which he delights. I hope he'll give me that. Newton knows we have to get that from God. It is grace. Our, our brokenness, our contriteness is itself also a gift from God. It is the goodness of God that leads to repentance, right? Paul says in Romans. This to me is the chief, the chief thing. In other words, you know, God is going to give us what He delights in. He's going to make that happen somehow. We'd rather have a gift wrapped lovely than through the, the, the package of suffering. I had rather have more of the mind that was in Christ, more of a meek, quiet, resigned, peaceful, and loving disposition than to enjoy the greatest measure of sensible comforts. If the consequence should be, as a pastor should, spiritual pride, self-sufficiency, and a want of that tenderness to others which becomes one who has reason to style himself the chief of sinners. Let's almost feel like I have to translate Newton. See, he says, I'd rather have more of the mind that was in Christ. I'd rather be more meek, he says. I'd rather be quiet and, and resigned and, and peaceful and have a loving disposition than all of the other practical sort of comforts I have. If those sensible comforts, I'm assuming he means non-suffering, if those sensible comforts are going to lead to a sense of pride in me, right? I'd rather have what comes with suffering if that suffering is going to produce in me this disposition of love and peacefulness and quietness. I'd rather have that than what might potentially come from all the other comforts 
which could be a sense of spiritual laziness, a sense of spiritual pride, self-sufficiency. I remember once I was reading a book in this great book I have on the philosophy of religion. And there's uh, a chapter, a whole section dedicated to the problem of evil, right? Which is, which should, you know, which is a reasonable thing for people to be concerned with. Okay, so in other words, right? If, if there is a good and loving God, why does He allow evil? And so, how these different uh, religious philosophers, giving their, you know, ten, eight, ten page um, philosophical um, conclusions that they've arrived at when it comes to why would God allow evil. And I remember at one time reading someone that said, if, if there was no evil, if there was nothing negative, if there was nothing, people would come to the unreasonable, irrational conclusion that life without God is possible. Right? That we really don't need God. And so why would God allow such a thing? Why would God allow a universe in which his ultimate sort of goal is relationship and, and, and dependence in submission to him and all that. Why? How can... It, it, in fact, in fact, this, this philosopher would argue it's logically impossible for God to create a world in which evil is not a possibility. In which these things can happen. Why? Because, once again, if everything went good for everybody all the time, and there was no evil as man construes it, women construe it in his mind, then people would come to the conclusion that life without God, that, that God is unnecessary. And I thought that was a very good point. I thought that was a very good point. I just put it out there for your enjoyment. So, <clears throat> and he says, in a want of that tenderness to others which becomes one who has reason to style himself the chief of sinners as he thought of himself, the only way I can have the tenderness to others, which is the kind of tenderness that somebody should have when that person realizes what a sinner they are, there's only one way to get there. There's only one way to get there. I'd rather have the, the things in life that come by way of the, the mind of Christ. And we heard last week, even Christ, right? We know this. Christ was perfected through... He came to learn obedience through suffering. Through suffering. Yes? So, when you said that before, I was thinking of Romans 9. Good. Thank you for bringing Scripture into it. 23. Mm-hmm. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory and want to yeah. yeah, Fantastic, yeah. It's a great verse. Everyone get that? And do you know why she brought that up? If you didn't, and, 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 and open up. So, read it again, please. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the object of his mercy? Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and what Paul's referring to is, what if, what if God sort of put up with rebellion from humans? What if he put up with it? So that he could make the riches of his mercy known. You know, you need that... that we humans, the way that we think and the way that we interact, we need points of comparison, right? So we need, we need, we need to have that. Under, sometimes we understand things by some awareness of the other thing, right? We, we, we know light and dark because we know that, you know, we, we wouldn't know what light was if there was no darkness. We'd have nothing to, by which we can define it, right? So, there's a point Paul's making there is, what if, what if God wanted to show his mercy? To, to, he wanted to show off himself. He wanted to show more of himself to the vessels of mercy, i.e. us, those that believe. What if he, he wanted to just demonstrate his mercy? Make an, ex- and, and make an example of it. Show you a picture of it. You know, give, you, give you something by which you can say, wow, look at the mercy of God. And to know that that mercy was magnified by God's patience towards sinners, <clears throat> like he had towards us. 
we can be forgetful. So rather than looking at God's mercy towards sinners and wondering why do they get away with that, maybe we ought to look at it and remember, hey, God was that towards me also. Or maybe you don't think you're as bad as that one. And so to fashion yourself and think of yourself in terms of the chief of sinners, he says here. Somebody read 11, uh, Hebrews 11, 24 to 25, if they have, whoever's got a Bible with them. Who has a Bible with them and is willing to read? Thanks. So will you take that? Hebrews 11, 24 to 25, because it's just the scripture that came to my mind when I heard what was going on here, as well as where's, where's, where's he getting his mind when he's talking about being humble and contrite? What scripture is that? It is a psalm. Yes, I want you to read that, the Hebrews one, but before you do, I want someone to give me a sense of where that... It does come from... Psalm 35 or something. Psalm 51. You know, humble and contrite heart, right? He will not despise. Humble and broken spirit. Okay, go ahead, Sue. Okay. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. What a great example of what Newton is like. Newton must have had this on his mind. All right? I mean, Moses had every potential comfort. Everything. I mean, he, he could call for the life of a person to be taken. I mean, you... You know, when you're the Pharaoh, you're in with the Pharaoh. I mean, the person that does the slightest thing to annoy you, you're done. Right? I mean, who wants that kind of problem? Everyone else is an ant, and you're the foot. Right? If you cross me, I've got a special place for you under my shoe. Right? Moses had all of that, potentially. He had the, all of it. The riches, the sumptuous food, everything. But he chose rather to suffer with God's people. Again, this is the book of Hebrews, right? What a I bet when we get to glory and we get to hang out with Newton a little bit, he's going to be talking about the book of Hebrews. He'll be giving classes on the book of Hebrews still. I do. I, I just really think he was influenced so much by what I've seen in him so far. Like, like many should be, I suppose, is the influence of the author of the book of Hebrews on, on John Newton. Because Newton, you know, the same guy that wrote Amazing Grace, right? he knows the insufficiency of the Mosaic Covenant to make somebody what God intended them. He knows the, uh, the, the the glory of the high priesthood of Jesus, you know, and how necessary that was. You look at everything that's in Hebrews and you just think somebody like a Wilberforce who could write Amazing Grace would have to have been drenched in the book of Hebrews. He continues, I know indeed that the proper tendency of sensible consolations is to humble but I can see that through the depravity of human nature, they have not always that effect. Because with depraved, God's actions don't always have the effect. And I have been sometimes disgusted with an apparent want of humility, an air of self-will and self-importance, in person whose sincerity I could not at all doubt. It has kept me from envying those with pleasant frames with which they have sometimes been favored. <laughs> so, people that seem to have a great reputation, people that seem to be of a, of a high standing and all that, he says, I've sometimes been disgusted with how little humility they have, with this sense of self-will they have about them, self-importance. And people that have, people regard otherwise. I see it in them, he says. He says, For I believe Satan is never nearer us than at some times when we think ourselves nearest to the Lord. That's a good insight. I believe Satan is never nearer us than at some times when we think ourselves nearest to the Lord. I think he gets that from both Peter and Paul. You know, with Peter, right? And there's Paul, Peter following him and 
doing all that says, ah, oh, you know, no, Lord, they'll never be it. They're never going to arrest you and crucify you. How, how much did he think he was in the Lord's interest at that point? How much did he think that he was siding with the Lord? And all the things he said, I'll go to death with you. We're ready to go with you, you know. Jesus' immediate response, get behind me, Satan. Satan was right there. He was right there. Side by side with Peter. And I think because there can be a sense of spiritual... I think what he's talking about is that spiritual pride. That might come from just comforts all the time. From not being, you know... uh, not being conformed by suffering and, and trials. And this, I, I'll tell you, this to me is, i got to memorize this. Okay? So I'm, I'm setting this up for you. i got to memorize this little portion, these two sentences that he says here. This may be the best instruction I've ever received or ever heard. Or maybe it's just the way that it's given. He starts out with, Oh... That we may set him, the Lord, right? Oh, that we may set him always before us and consider every dispensation, person, thing we meet in the course of every day as messengers from him. Each bringing us some line of instruction for us to copy into that day's experience. Whatever passes within us or around us may be improved when he teaches us how as a perpetual commentary upon his good word. Every moment of every day. Mm. So let me just sort of, maybe I'll paraphrase that a little. Oh, that Christ would always be in my mind, constantly before me. My, my communication with God, my intercourse with God, would always be such that everything that happens, everything on the street, everything on my way in here, everything that happens at home, everything when I'm walking the dog, every time that going to the bathroom, there's only three little pieces of toilet paper left on the roll. Everything that happened, the food that I wanted there wasn't there, the thing I put in the fridge at work somebody else took, the whatever, everything. Everything. If I saw everything as messengers from him, each of those things intended by him to bring me a line of instruction so that my spiritual condition can be improved as he teaches me. And if all of those things that happen are a perpetual commentary on his good word, if everything I look at is him giving me commentary on his own word, I can't imagine living that kind of a life. I mean, I can imagine it. Or I should say, I can only imagine. Because I guarantee you, I would literally bet my life on it, nobody in here lives that way. How do I know? Because you're here. And you're not in glory. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Am I making too much of this, or is this not intense? Good point. Um, I saw the back of a windshield of a van one time uh, on the road, and they just had the verse... Reference Psalm 16 8. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew the verse, but I, it made me think, I wonder why that person has that verse on the back of their windshield. Mm-hmm. But the verse reads like this, and it goes along with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I have set the Lord always before yeah. me, mm-hmm. because he is at my right hand, mm-hmm. and I shall not be moved. Yeah. That expression, he shall be at my right hand, if we only knew that he, he's constantly there, mm-hmm. but we just don't recognize him there, we sort of dismiss him, we isolate ourselves away from him, but how precious it would be mm-hmm. if we just recognize his ongoing, permanent presence exactly. right there with us. He is our invisible friend. And that's another key reason why we have one another, is we are always to see the work of Christ and Christ himself in the body. This is why it's... It's, it is such folly to say that you're a Christian and not be involved regularly 
with the people of God. Mm. You are not. I, whatever else you may say, however else you may, you, however else you may speak wonderful things about Christ, you do not know Him. If you're not having regular exchange, regular intercourse with His people, you do not know Him. And you will hear on that day, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. That's, that's just real. I'm persuaded from Scripture. You cannot do it. Maybe for a time, you know, if you're just spiritually unhealthy and until someone lovingly comes along and admonishes and reproves, okay, and gets you back in with the people of God. This is what Jesus did. He built his church. It's impossible. It is impossible. How do I know it? Because the Word of God tells me. He closes out this letter, this particular letter to her. Secret prayer. Okay, uh, well, let me back up a little. We, now he's, he's talking about the other subject now. It must be talking about deprivation of ordinances. In other words, when we're deprived of those things which sometimes are uh, to, our, to our good. When we have the opportunity of enjoying many ordinances, it is a mercy to be able to prize and improve them. But when he cuts us short for a reason, if we wait upon him, we shall do well without them. However, though, secret prayer and the good word are the chief wells from which we draw the water of salvation. These will keep the soul alive when creature streams are cut off. But the richest variety of public means and the closest attendance upon them will leave us lean and pining in the midst of plenty if we are remiss and formal in the other, in, in the other two. Okay, so even if we have all the other public ordinances he gives us, whether it's getting, if we're getting together with the Lord's people, fellowship meals, even if for some reason we miss the Lord's Supper, I mean, sometimes these other types of things that can happen. And what he's saying is the richest variety of public means, our richest exchanges, right, and the closest attendance upon them will leave us lean and pining, even in the midst of plenty, if we are remiss and formal in prayer in the Word of God. If we are not attending rarely to prayer in the Word of God, all the other plenty will be not so much. You know, one of the things that COVID-19 does is deprive people of flavor, of smell and taste. Right? And to be without the Word of God in the midst of all His plenty is, is, to, is, to, is to have that experience. You know, to be able to... Um, my wife still has some learning effects. She can't smell. It's great because I can eat eggs in the house for the first time. She can't stand the smell of eggs cooking. I, and, and, and seafood either. So I've got I to gotta cook some haddock in the house. I mean, it's time for me to... It's time for me to really benefit from her suffering. But... But, right? But... but so if we, if we can have all that in the midst of all that... Imagine walking into a Thanksgiving house with, and you can't smell. Oh, man. What a drag, Right? So likewise, even in the midst of all those good things, we cannot appreciate church as much. We cannot appreciate the Lord's Prayer as much. I mean, the Lord's Supper as much. We cannot appreciate fellowship with God's people. We can't enjoy men's breakfasts together. The women can't enjoy the women's ministries and the sisters and the spirit and the other things that go on. If you're depriving and you're not, and you're not in the Word of God and you are not praying. What a great point that is. Why? Because you don't have, you haven't developed... What you need to enjoy those things. In order to enjoy God's people and, and all the other things, all the other spiritual wonders that God gives us, we have to be equipped to enjoy those. I ministered to the heart of a, a dying brother who was cancer just recently. And I asked him, I said, brother, I said, you pray much. And he said, no. Uh-huh. And I, I'm like, well, 
that's your source of strength, one of your sources of strength. I said, why would you do that to yourself? Yeah. But if, if, if we don't pray much or access the the, uh, the needs of grace while we're living and healthy, yeah. how do we think we're actually yeah. going to respond when we're nearing death? He says, he concludes here, I think David never appears in a more lively frame of mind than when he wrote the 42nd, 63rd, and 84th Psalms, which were all penned in a dry land and at a distance from the public ordinances. Away from God's people and all that. But he says that he was never nearer to the Lord. So he closes, I am with greatest regard, dear madam, your most obedient and obliged servant. So, excellent exhortation and admonition in here and, uh, and some encouragement on suffering. And reminding us always, as the brother Todd was just getting at, these things have to be part and parcel of our, our life all the time. Again, in the, the, the warp and woof of everything that we are, the fabric of our being, word of God and prayer, word of God and prayer. Why? So that we're rightly equipped for every good work, for every good blessing, and, and, and for every suffering. So let's, let's, let's take that good instruction to heart this week and be thankful for our brother here, John Newton, and We'll pick up some more next week. Next week we're going to pick up with... Uh, do I have one more letter? Yeah, just one more brief little letter that I have to her. And then we'll pick up with uh, the Earl of Dartmouth. Okay? Some letters that he wrote to him. Uh, by way of Sunday school, by the way, uh, there's been some discussion about moving this to 10.30. We started at 10.15, not knowing exactly how it would work and the timing of getting to here in the church. Uh, up at Faith Baptist for now. So, what, what's the sense that you you have? Is 10:15 or 10:30 preferable? 10:30. How many 10:30s we have out there? It makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, okay. who, who, how many don't care? Either well, way. Don't care. All right. Well, the thing is, if we go from here up to the church, it's seven minutes away. You're hanging on. Our servers are not for 45 minutes from now. Right. It's 11:15 right okay. now. So okay. people like you who come from native have more time than other people. That's, that's something we've talked okay. about. All right, so, so, so let's do that. Make that announcement this morning then? Yeah. And from the pulpit, we'll move it to 10.30. And, you know, if you prefer 10.15, I'm sorry you've lost part of the majority. But you can always come early and hang around in the parking lot. That's right. I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll be here by 10 anyway. So if you want to come and be here, be here. This, it, it doesn't mean the coffee and donuts won't be here. That's not going to change. So, I mean, I would never do that. That's unnecessary suffering. Yes. Yeah. Next week, 10.30? I'll announce that, uh, and I'll have Mickey put something out to the rest of the church. It may, it may make a difference for some people who are not coming and they want to come. Okay. Yeah, sure. Randy, would you close this prayer, please? I will. Mean, Father, thank you for this time that come together. Thank you for our brother Pat and our brother John Newton. Mm. Uh, the they both are to us, but use this, Father, to prepare our hearts, minds, and souls to come before you today in spirit and truth and to worship you the way we should, Lord God. So uh, bless our time together and prepare us, Lord, to receive your word. Give us ears, give us eyes, give us hearts and minds to believe. We ask in Christ's name. And, and uh, Lord, may we also pray, this, uh, we know that the children are going to be experiencing a little three weeks of ministry here with uh, Chrissy and Lydia and April and we ask that that would be a very fruitful time, Lord, and that the fruits, the uh, seeds of genuine faith would be planted, that uh, they'd be watered, that uh, fertilized, all those things, that the difference that these ladies are going to make in those children now will bear fruit, if not immediately, then many years to come. Amen. Amen. Don't be afraid to grab some additional dirt.